Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with Dr. Elizabeth Corey, who is a professor in the Honors College at Baylor University. In fact, she directs the Honors Program within the Honors College there at at Baylor University. I met Elizabeth uh, in the summer of 2018 at at Acton University uh, and heard a a lecture of hers on race and intersectionality. And and after almost the, the moment after you finished, Elizabeth, I thought we've got to get you on the podcast to talk about this. So <laughs> we're really delighted to have you with us. Um, and so thanks so much for coming on with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. You've, uh, you write about, you've written a lot about diversity and race and intersectionality is sort of the newest trend in the discussion on race and diversity on college campuses. But before we get to intersectionality, let me, let's go back just a little bit more at the 30,000-foot level. You write in several places about two competing frameworks in which the, dis- the discussion on race and diversity is viewed in the university across the country today. What are those two frameworks and how are they different? Uh, that's a good question to start with. I am actually borrowing from um, moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, or Haidt, uh, there's some dispute about how to say his name, um, who has written a lot about these issues. And he has pr- proposed uh, a dichotomy between two ideal kinds of universities, two ideal types, really. Um, and he calls these two uh, truth diversity and social, sorry, truth university and social justice university. And truth university is the more or less the traditional understanding of a university, it finds its roots in in Mill's defense of viewpoint diversity uh, and on liberty, which I will come back to uh, probably as we talk. Uh, Well, social justice university originates in a more Marxist understanding about power and oppression. Um, Truth university uh, depends on a vigorous and unfettered exchange of ideas. Uh, the, the, The university that is called social justice university, by contrast, aims primarily at protecting and eventually, if we're lucky, liberating um, victims. So diversity means something very different at each university. Truth University, I'm going to just draw out a few um, points of comparison. Uh, Truth University assumes primarily that the activity of scholarship is open to anybody who wants to engage in it, regardless of whether that person is a man or woman, black, white, gay, straight, what regardless of uh, any of those considerations. And it also assumes that the outcome of such scholarship could be verifiable by anyone, uh, regardless of where that person stands uh, in terms of these categories. Uh, on the, uh, by contrast, um, social justice university uh, understands diversity as not so much different viewpoints. I mean, you'll, you'll hear this discussed as viewpoint, not as viewpoint diversity in, in the social justice university. Diversity in social justice university is um, uh, consistent in equitable representation of, of different groups of people. So, for instance, women, um, African-Americans, Hispanic, and, and any other uh, designated group uh, that an institution wants to, um, to, to name. So the aim is not, you're not necessarily replicating the proportions of women and minorities um, in the population, but it, it is to cultivate uh, a critical mass of people whose race and sex 
um, distinguish them from the white male majority. So d- diversity there is much more um, a kind of, I-, I won't say it's a quota system because uh, diversity advocates in social justice universities say it's not a quota system, but it is to increase radically the number of under traditionally underrepresented groups in in the academy, both in terms of students and in terms of faculty. So, I suspect some of our listeners might be wondering why why can't or why shouldn't a university be committed to both truth and social justice at the same time? It seems mm-hmm, to me that, that the scriptures actually call us to be committed to both of those things. Right. I think that would be right, uh, that, that we are called to be um, observant of both those goods. I mean, truth is not something we want to throw over, nor is social justice. But when I'm using social justice and, and following um, Jonathan Haidt here, it, it depends on a certain understanding of social justice. And the understanding that he's building on is the kind of, is what I would say is the common secular understanding of social justice as um based in categories of oppression and power. So, for instance, if social justice is the notion that oppression structures nearly all aspects of our lives and we have to address it and correct it first and foremost, then disinterested study or truth just can't exist because the old-fashioned pursuit of truth is just power masquerading as disinterest. Um, it, we may talk about critical race theory uh, over the course of this um, uh, interview, but if we don't, that's something uh, that critical race theory assumes as a kind of starting point, that social justice um, it consists in righting past wrongs, uh, and, and it has to do with these categories of power and oppression. So let me just move from there to say, in the extreme social justice understanding, all academic subjects have to be understood as existing in the service of eliminating inequality. Um, not just racial, legal, moral, but gender-based, sexual orientation-based, and so on. And and you can see this going on in all kinds of academic inquiry, not just sociology or uh, political science, but also history, medieval studies, other things of that sort. So all these subjects come to be um, structured by questions that deal with power and oppression. Now, if by contrast we said, okay, social justice is um, understood in a in a tradition in the traditional Christian notion that we ought to treat all people with equal respect as moral beings, then of course you know it can and always has existed in Truth University. Uh, but I'm 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 trying to make a distinction that the the modern understanding of social justice is not exactly the one that um, that perhaps we as Christians have always understood. Uh, as social justice. Okay, that, I think that that's a particularly helpful distinction to make there. Um, you make a plea th- in the number of things that you've written for what you call a more moderate diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what would that look like? I think it would fundamentally avoid the extremes of either uh, the ideal type of social justice university where everything is about power and oppression, or on the other hand, truth university, where we are all at all times disinterested. Now, as I'm saying, those are ideal types, and we all know that they don't exist uh, in pure in pure form in the world. Um, but there is a sense in which um, a, a kind of moderate diversity might be able to bridge the 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 gap between these two these two understandings. let me um, let me say really more what I mean about that. Here in my work at Baylor, there I've observed that there's a very large and quiet, generally, group of moderates uh, among my colleagues, people who are 
uh, more or less uh, in in possession of a moder- of, of a common sense view of diversity, where you can imagine, okay, in a seminar room, you don't necessarily want everyone to hold the same. Um, view. I, I teach American constitutional law very often, and if I have a class where everyone has the same political view, the conversation is rather boring. Um, so this kind of diversity, especially a viewpoint, but sometimes also of race and gender, can yield a much more fruitful conversation um, than one than a con- the conversation where everyone has already arrived at a, a kind of orthodoxy. For example, you know, women will contribute goods and ideas that a, a, an all-male conversation might not produce, and it's often the interaction between the men and women that produce it. Um, just to give you one other example from my own personal experience, I teach a, a class in great text to uh, to engineers, and it often happens that the classes are 90% male. The dynamic in that class is sometimes not as good as the dynamic uh, of of the class where the the sexes are more evenly distributed. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it is it is the case that uh, that there there's a kind of understanding of diversity of men and women, race and uh, viewpoint that, that combines to make certainly a classroom uh, a better place. So, I mean, there, this is not to say we need to have um, a, a, a black professor, a woman professor, uh, it, you know, in every department in, in a certain number, but it is to say that, uh, you know, these, these different viewpoints may actually contribute some goods to the, to the um, intellectual experience of students and, and faculty alike. You're kind of leading us naturally to the, to the topic of intersectionality, which has become such an important term. I want you to define for us. But first, let me throw a question out there. Of all the topics you could speak and write on, why this one? Aren't you kind of stepping on a hornet's nest, so to speak? Absolutely. <laughs> I I was not uh, planning to to get into this in any way. It, it arose out of an experience I had at Baylor uh, about two years ago. We had a provost who came to Baylor and decided that uh, we were insufficiently diverse uh, at at the university. So he began to have a, a, a series of town hall meetings. Well, I didn't know the first thing about diversity, and I had heard the term intellectual diversity. So I thought he was talking about uh, the kind of diversity, you know, that would come with, say, a mode of reading a certain subject. For for instance, in political science, uh, you often have a, a Straussian reading of certain core political texts. And I thought diversity would be a good so that we don't all go down the same route in terms of, you know, the, w- the way we read texts. And I thought that's what this, these town halls were going to be about. Well, it turned out I was completely wrong and, and, hadn't understood this at all. It was very much about pursuing the kind of social justice diversity model that uh, that I've been talking about here. We don't have enough women. We don't have enough African-Americans. We don't have enough Hispanics. And we need to bring those people into the conversation. Uh, and we actually need to privilege them over uh, the, the people who have traditionally uh, been in the academy, like white men, especially um, white women to some extent, but certainly white white men. And uh, so, so it was a it was a town hall meeting at Baylor uh, that that got me into this, and I I began to to try to think it through and and realize what a contentious issue it is. Will you define for us what's meant by intersectionality and how it's connected to the cultural discussions going on right now about race? Sure. Um, I think the best way to describe it is to just talk about where it originated. It. Uh, it, it's, it's a relatively recent creation. It's uh, created in 1989 by a, a black feminist scholar, 
a woman by the name of Kimberly Crenshaw, and she wrote an article, a seminal article that everyone now quotes, uh, that makes a case for treating race and gender not as separate legal categories, uh, but as engendering a new combined category. So, for example, while a woman might claim discrimination on the basis of sex uh, and a black man might claim it on the basis of race, neither sex nor race alone can capture the discrimination endured by a black woman, which which is, seems intuitively correct. And she she illustrates this uh, by means of um, a couple of legal cases. One of them, the, the easiest to understand, I think, is this one called DeGraff and Reed versus General Motors. And in this case, uh, a group of uh, five black women sued General Motors for discrimination. And here, was, here are the circumstances. GM had not hired black women prior to 1964. And then it dismissed all its black female employees after 1970 uh, on the basis of seniority. And so the, the group of black women, the plaintiffs, claimed that the harm they suffered couldn't be captured by suing only as women because GM could point out that it had hired women, white women, prior to 1964 and that it retained them after 1970. And then the plaintiffs also turned around and said, well, we're not willing to sue on the basis of race alone because their discrimination was not merely racial, but was a result of their being both disadvantaged as women uh, and as uh, African Americans, and the court would have none of it, and they rejected the claim. The court rejected the claim and said this would be um, a very dangerous uh, precedent to set. Uh, I'll, I'll read you a quote from the, co- the court. It said uh, the creation of new classes of protected minorities, governed only by the mathematical principles of permutation and combination, clearly raises the prospect of opening the hackneyed Pandora's box. So, in other words, they said. If we allow these kind of combined identities to be a legal category, then we are uh, potentially, uh, you know, raising an infinite number of claims against an infinite number of um, uh, companies. But Crenshaw, I do think there's something, there's quite a lot to this. Uh, Crenshaw points out that the black women couldn't really sue on the basis of either of these characteristics alone because they did constitute uh, a class who uh, were disadvantaged by two different um, uh, two two different situations and so this is this is the origin of the metaphor of intersectionality maybe the easiest way to to explain intersectionality is to use a metaphor that that she uses which is uh, Crenshaw uses and she uh, analogizes intersectionality to traffic in an intersection and she says that discrimination like traffic in an intersection can flow in any direction And so if an accident were to happen, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them or any combination of them. So she says if a black woman is harmed because she's in the intersection, her injury could result from sex discrimination or race discrimination. So that's the basic idea of of intersectionality. So it it sounds like that uh, it's it's almost like double dipping in terms of discrimination. It um, is, but yeah, it is. But here's the thing: it's not, it's not simply that you know you're disadvantaged in a certain way, and then you're on top of that you're disadvantaged in another way. Intersectionality posits that the the combination of those two uh, forms of discrimination can can sort of combine to form yet a a, a new kind of discrimination. So. Uh, there has been 30 years of work, and I am not an expert in this work, but I've, I've, I've become aware of it, where 
you know, people are using intersectionality as a way of um, really getting at all sorts of aspects of identity and, and all sorts of aspects of discrimination. And Crenshaw's talking about gender uh, and our sex and uh, race, but now it's ex- expanded infinitely to, to, to include all sorts of um, gender identity, um, class, you know, a, a number of other uh, characteristics that are that are now included in the intersectional conversation. Now, I think it's not it's not hard to see how the the number of categories here could increase exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that is what is happening. Well, are, but are are there are there some positive aspects of intersectionality that, as a culture, we need to hear about? Yeah. Well, I think the the, the one really positive thing is that intersectionality does recognize. If we don't take it to sort of an ideological extreme, it does recognize that the experiences that condition a person's life are uniquely combinable so that, you know, where we used to talk about people in terms of all women think X or all African-Americans think X, intersectionality says, well, you know, it it is a different thing to be uh, an African-American man than it is to be a diff- uh, an African-American woman. And he- here's how gender makes that, that or sex makes that difference between the, um, the the two classes. And that there's clearly something right about that. And it also is a way of considering, um, if you're in conversation, you know, with someone and you, you're trying to be um, charitable and, and a good listener and you can realize, okay, well, the things that are motivating them are not a simple uh question of of one disadvantage but this person is disadvantaged in this way uh and perhaps also disadvantaged in another way and these things combine to form um a combination of um uh, really a combination of disadvantages now the, the i guess the danger there though is that it, uh, it it can be taken to an extreme uh that is that is very much politically divisive uh it, it tends it tends to separate. So I'm actually not answering your question about it, the positive aspect. I'm turning a little bit again to the, to the negative. Well, it that, tends to that sep- was, that was my next question. Is that so your next question? That's a nice well, transition. It, it does tend to separate us into more discrete groups with more and more discrete and sometimes opposing interests. Um, and, and in this adversarial way, it allows for the silencing of groups that are not privileged. <laughs> now, ironically, the not privileged groups these days tend to be, um, above all, white men. Uh, and I've I was at a meeting recently where I heard someone say, "Well, you know, white men have had their say for all these years. It is time for them to shut up and listen to other people." Well, okay, that may be the case for for some white men, but to to make these kinds of blanket statements is in a is in a way to engage in the same kind of behavior that got us into this position in the first place. To say that all white men because of their uh, privilege, are incapable of speaking into the conversation, seems to me to be a real danger. The the other thing I would emphasize here is that uh, intersectionality tends to accord thoughts and positions to people by virtue of their race, gender, or sexual orientation. And these may or may not be thoughts or positions those people actually hold. There's a kind of, uh, I would almost say, a determinism in being identified as a member of a class. Uh, I don't mean economic class, I mean group identity. Uh, I would object, and I know many people who would also object to the notion that they hold their views or they are who they are because of their uh, membership in a class as a woman or 
you know, as a as a, a black man, you know, you must hold this view. And they'll say, no, I really don't. And that kind of determinism to me is a real danger. And it's um, it's something I would uh, want to, to fight against. Elizabeth, you describe intersectionality as, quote, a quasi-religious Gnostic movement. Now, mm-hmm. I had to stop and pause in my mind and read that a few times. But then you said something that really was interesting to me. You said it has the same appeal as all religions do. What do you mean by that description? And how does inter- intersectionality have the same appeal as, say, a more traditional religion? Well, I said that in an article uh, that was published in the magazine First Things called um, First Church of Intersectionality. And I was describing it in uh, in, in the terms of a, a political philosopher from the 20th century by the name of Eric Vogelin. Some of your listeners may know him. And he had the idea that Gnostic movements uh, were in a certain sense, an attempt to save people from the discomfort they felt at really at being human, things that couldn't be uh, taken away um, from the, from, let's say this way, uh, things that are uncomfortable about the human condition that cannot be eliminated and, and nevertheless will, will endure. And so uh, Vogelin, and I'll just tell you a little bit about what he thought. He thought that, um, people were inclined toward Gnosticism and that the Gnostics had a certain number of characteristics. The Gnostic is dissatisfied with his, with the situation, believes the, the world is not well organized, thinks that salvation from the evils of the world is possible, and, that, and thinks that, and this could have some overlap with modern progressivism, that the order of being will be changed in a historical process, which comes about through human effort. And the Gnostic looks for a prophet who shares saving knowledge about how to make the transformation happen. Those are those characteristics that Bolin describes. In a certain sense, um, I, I called it a religious movement because I saw uh, at a conference at Notre Dame this exact pattern happening. Um, you know, that, that it, was a, it was actually a conference on intersectionality and that the people at the conference were very dissatisfied with their positions in society and they hoped for change through um, a kind of transformation of the historical process and upending of all traditional um, ways of, of organizing and of being an upending of the university. And they, they were looking for someone to, to lead them through this. And the whole mo- the movement as a whole is very much not an academic movement in any real way. It was a kind of activist um, movement that required a certain amount of sort of religious investment. And in, the, in that sense, I saw the parallels between um, a kind of perhaps not the most positive understanding of religion, but but a, a kind of religious, um, almost a mania that we, we've got to change things and we've got to do it now. And um, one of the speakers who spoke at this conference was going to lead us through this. So that's that's those are the ways in which I saw it as a as a quasi religious movement. Can you give me some perspective on how to make sense of this tension? I was having coffee not long ago with a, a, a gay black man, and I just asked him, I said, I've asked people who are gay about their experience, people who are black about their experience, but what does it mean in your experience to see the world through these two lenses? And I was genuinely interested, and we had a great conversation. But then I look at the larger level, and you've like cultural question, you've described how at the heart of this social justice movement 
is kind of this Marxist approach that just says it's through revolution, it's through power, it's through silencing people to get these ideas across. Is the solution both bottom-up and top-down, or how do we make sense of this personal listening, building relationship with these larger cultural tensions that are taking place where they say, I'm not willing to listen, you don't get a voice, I want to silence you in a sense? Yeah, that's that is the question, and I don't I don't have a good answer for it. I mean, in my own life, um, thinking through it, obviously, like you, I actually am very interested in in hearing from people about their experiences from their particular perspectives. So I would have been definitely, you know, sort of a fly on the wall if I could have been at your conversation to say, okay, well, how does how does this man view the world? It sounds to me like he also listened to you, there was not an adversarial relationship. It seems to me this is a a problem with a kind of uh, macro view of politics, though, that things lose their personal character and become ideological movements. So that even as I can recognize and you can recognize that intersectionality, there's definitely something right about it and that it's describing individual human experiences in ways that are unique to that individual um, there's when it's when it when it's taken up as a political weapon, then uh, then it's more destructive than it is um, constructive. The other thing I think that's that's a danger here is that it's it's one of these things that once you kind of sign on or or become part of this world, it's never again questioned. So that you know the people who have embraced intersectionality as the way they view the world. Uh, can't understand that there are other ways of of looking at the world. For example, in the university, um, I have often made a case that we ought to to try to understand the old idea of disinterest. What does it mean to be a disinterested scholar? The intersectionality folks would say you cannot be disinterested. Everything about you is interest, and it's political, and it's at heart political. And uh, the the notion that you could be disinterested is just an illusion. So you lose, you know, once you're once you've become a, a a true believer in in say intersectionality, you're unable to imagine that there are alternative ways of, of viewing the world, and I think that is that's a that's a real danger in the academy, um, especially in certain in certain fields that have have fully embraced this. So to call to call intersectionality a worldview is is actually accurate, you would say. I do think it is uh, because. It again. I mean, it's it structures itself in terms of of oppression, levels of oppression, and levels of power, and the whole world is then seized through that lens. It, everything becomes about relative um, social privilege and disadvantage. So let me see if I can su- summarize this. Um, there's there's but there's just so much to think about here. So I, we really appreciate you being so clear about this. Uh, but for, for, I think for our listeners, let me just see if I can sum, summarize this. That all, on the surface, the idea of intersectionality s- seems to make some sense. That the, like Sean had mentioned, the, the experience of a gay man and a black man would both be different than the experience of a gay black man. So there's there's some, there's some there's something to the idea, but that it's that it's that it's the intersectionality movement that smuggles in. A, a worldview that uh, that you know that may have elements to it that we would find troubling or problematic. I, I think that's right. 
let me give an, a parallel example that'll get me in just as much trouble as uh, <laughs> probably talking about the diversity and intersectionality. It's it's the idea of, of the Me Too movement. I mean, I guess you're getting the sense that I, I have a problem with, with any movement that is so broad and all-encompassing because in the Me Too movement, like intersectionality, there's there's a very good insight that women ought to be treated well and men ought not to be predators and 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 evil. <laughs> I mean, no one would disagree with that. But in in the making of this insight into a movement, what it's doing is making every man into a predator in a way that I think is absolutely ridiculous and unrealistic. Um, now, people people will argue with the way I'm characterizing the Me Too movement, but there is something about anything that takes a, a really good and true insight and then wants to, to make it into the way one views the world that is that is dangerous, um, and, and I see that happening in both those movements. I wonder. I wonder if it might also it might also be parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement. That oh, there, that there's there's some there's something to the idea that Black Lives Matter, but to distinguish between the affirmation and the movement, so mm-hmm. maybe maybe to distinguish between the intersectionality phenomena and the intersectionality movement. Uh, it might be one way of making that distinction and to be careful about what the movement actually smuggles in in terms of a world, or maybe not even smuggles in, maybe it's, it's openly brought in in terms of a worldview. Yeah, no, um, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. I don't really have anything to add to that. I think you've summarized it. I think you've summarized it well. Well, there's Elizabeth, there is so much more to talk about here. If we could have the, the luxury of having you on again, we, we would sure appreciate it. Sean and I both appreciate how, how clear and how, uh, just how articulate you've been in describing what I think may be a somewhat new phenomena to many of our listeners. So I think you've done us a great service here, and we're very appreciative of it. So we'd, well, thank you so much. We'd be delighted to have you on again in the future. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. You bet. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Elizabeth Corey, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's stimulating conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend.